Good evening, and uh, today we're going to discuss something different. Because I'd gotten a request to say something about the meaning of the divine service for the crowning of marriage. I think we too often think of it as in terms of a wedding, and in Western parlance, a wedding has a certain connotation and meaning that really does not apply to the Orthodox Christian crowning service. I've seen some very pitiful explanations of the crowning service in some catechisms or booklets written by various people, and I think we need to take perhaps a more serious look at it. The uh, crowning of the marriage itself did not enter into the list of the holy mysteries of the church until the 17th century. It was one of the 40 or 50 uh, holy mysteries or sacraments that we have in the Orthodox Church. In fact, it did not enter into the Roman Catholic idea of seven sacraments until in, well in the 1200s. And then there was a considerable debate about whether or not it should be included in those seven sacraments. The Roman Catholics always like magic numbers and seven happened to be one. Uh, in any case, there was a great debate about it because it was true that in the early church, marriage was all common law. There was no church ceremony or service. People would declare that they were going to cohabit the same as they had done in, in uh, the Hebrew tradition. And if there was a rabbi, uh, he could read or would read from the scripture, perhaps, but he wasn't a priest and he couldn't sanctify. Now, the um, early church, of course, the same idea continued. People would come before the, not the village this time, but perhaps the congregation, declare that they were going to cohabit. And this was all there was really to the marriage itself. Then they would come to the church for the blessing of the bishop. And it developed out of this a divine service. Now we won't take time to discuss the way the divine service developed or we wouldn't have time to finish discussing the service itself. But the idea that the marriage should be crowned by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But the Orthodox Church never does anything that, without a profound meaning and revelation to it. So in constructing the marriage, the uh, ceremony of the crowning itself, the church designed it to convey the real meaning of marriage, the real meaning of the creation of male and female in the beginning. Of course, the changing of the rings is not part of the crowning of the marriage service. The changing of the rings is betrothal. And in former times, the betrothal would take place a year, two years before the actual crowning of the marriage. Once the rings had been exchanged and the couple were betrothed, or the promises of betrothal had been made, while the couple could not cohabit together, they nevertheless were equal to being married because they were promised to one another. And uh, if uh, uh, the young man after the betrothal would then be killed in battle, which happened very frequently, the young woman, although she'd never cohabited with or had sexual relations with the young man, would nevertheless be a widow and her then uh, the next marriage she contracted would be a second marriage. So uh, in order to avoid this complication, 
the betrothal was moved up to take place immediately before the crowning of the marriage, the crowning of the, of the wedding itself. And so that's why the betrothal takes place at the back of the church. It's not a part of the crowning of the marriage ritual at all. Whereas in the West, it's the central feature. In the crowning of the marriage, traditionally, martyrs' crowns were used. In the Jewish tradition, crowns were uh, also used. And this is why we have to realize the great symbolism and meaning of the crown of thorns on the head of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul calls Christ the bridegroom, and we say, Behold, the bridegroom cometh in the middle of the night. And in the scripture, the Savior is referred to as the bridegroom a number of times. And Paul tells us that the church is a pure spotless bride of Christ. The crown of thorns on the head of Christ is his wedding crown, with which he has crowned to the church. And we must always remember that a crown of thorns is a wedding crown. The Romans perhaps thought they were mocking the idea of Christ as a king, but in, in any case, we see that as his wedding crown, and in the, the icon called the bridegroom of the church, which we use on the first three services of Holy Week, the bridegroom services, we see Christ crowned with his wedding crown, the crown of thorns. And uh, this is very important for us in understanding the meaning of the divine service we call the crowning of the marriage. I realize that in many uh, countries now, people abandon the martyr's crowns or the stephania and use these imperial margarine crowns. Uh, or theater crowns, which actually look a bit ridiculous and uh, make make the whole service a little more complicated, especially when the woman's fussy about her coiffure. Uh, in any case, the martyr's crowns, because martyr means witness, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone is killed for the faith, but it does mean that they witness something. Marriage is a type and likeness of Christ and the church, and the whole service reveals that to us. The Old Testament women prophets all prophesied over a revelation about the nature of the church itself. And the men prophets prophesied about the Messiah. Remember that the promise came to Abraham, but it could only be fulfilled through his lawful wife, through Sarah. It could not be fulfilled through her handmaiden, it, uh, Hagar. It could be fulfilled only through Sarah. She was a prophetess, Hagar was not. And so the revelation about Christ and the church is there in all these great women prophets of the Old Testament. And the church in the Old Testament had been fallen, was completely barren, unable to bear the fruit of redemption. And so the women who bore children in their old age beyond the age of bearing, who were already withered, and only by a special miracle of God could they continue in their prophetic role to reveal Christ and the Messiah, the relationship between God and Israel, and between God and his church. Remember that the Old Testament covenant was a spousal relationship and not a legal agreement, and to this all the holy prophets testify. So when we 
bring the couple into the church. The woman may be escorted to the back by her father, where the rings are changed, but never, under any circumstances, down the aisle to a waiting groom. The idea of the father escorting the bride down the aisle to the waiting groom is that the woman is his property and she has no identity except in relationship to the man who owns her or to whom she belongs. So the father brings her down and turns her over to the groom. So she becomes from being the father's property to being the husband's property. And now she can be identified as a human being, more or less, in relation to her husband and not in relation to her father, but never in relation to herself. Consequently, we do not have that escorting of the bride down the aisle to turn her over as chattel property to the groom. And when we come into the church and the husband and wife with their sponsor stand before the gospel on the reader stand, the two crowns are placed on a table. Sometimes the gospel is on the same table. And if one of them is not orthodox, then of course there's the common cup of wine. If both of them are orthodox, they're supposed to receive Holy Communion together, not the common cup. The couple become, their, their marriage is completely sanctified and their relationship sealed, not by any magic words pronounced in the service, but by receiving Holy Communion together as husband and wife. This is when they have fulfilled the revelation and the prophecy of Christ and the Church in their relationship. So the couple then are blessed in the name of all the great Old Testament prophets.